0: The title of the message this morning, and which really is probably going to have several components to it, but is Back to the Future, and uh, this morning is what happens when Jesus comes back. As I said, I'm only going to get into it a little bit today and it may be the next several weeks that we kind of finish and work our way through all of these verses, but we want to learn and understand, don't you? I, want, I, you know, I have to kind of process it before you and so we want to learn and understand it and we are going to uh, uh, take our time a little bit and so I'm not going to try to just cram everything in this morning. And uh, we'll just kind of uh, stop where a natural place to stop and pick it up next week. But if you have your Bibles, trust that you did bring your Bibles. We're going to read chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And uh, I'm going to read it. You listen and follow. And God's blessing upon the word of the Lord this morning. All right? Chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. The Apostle Paul, by the word of the Lord, writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by A word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit's help this morning with his with the word. Lord, we thank you, God, for this word today. We thank you, Word, that we have your will put in print. We thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and give us understanding, give give us clarity. Uh, Help me today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. Lord, give us a teachable spirit. Give us a mind that is ready to listen and learn, to be challenged by the Word of God. And Lord, above all, let us take encouragement from your Word today. And we thank you for the great hope, Lord, of the, the Jesus is alive and the truth that Jesus is returning. And so, Lord, we bless you today with this blessed hope of the believer, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen or "O oh me. All right, here we go. Uh, this section, as I said, is some of the most important uh, passages of Scripture concerning the second coming of Christ, Uh, concerning the believer's future. You know, there's a natural, I don't know, natural, but there's an inclination that most of us have, that human beings have, in wanting to know the future. I mean, just in a a non-Christian light, I mean, there are people that will pay money to have their palms read and fortune tellers and they'll make sure they get a tabloid at the beginning of the year to find out what Nostradamus had said, you know, whatever he said and however they want to do that. I mean, there's always this sense of wanting to know the future, you know, prognosticators and news analysts and all that. What is ahead, you know? And even where we're at today, you know, is what is Russia going to do in the Ukraine? And what is China going to do in Taiwan? What's going to be our con- You know, we, we want to know those things in just a natural sense. Well, uh, the Bible doesn't give us all those kind of details, contrary to what others might try to do, but it does give us information concerning the believer's Future and, and my heart, my goal in uh, in walking through this is I want to make sure I don't uh, we don't say more than what Scripture says. You know, we don't speculate and say more, but we don't want to say less, right? We don't want to say less. So sometimes we just have to say this is what it says, and and let's try to let's try to depend on the Spirit. And, uh, and, our, and our sanctified minds to apply ourselves to understand it, and that our, our heart or our, our authority is the Word of God. It isn't the, the fortune tellers and certainly not those things. Our authority is the Word of God, and I believe that this is one of the most essential uh, truths that a Christian should have, uh, be conversant in, uh, that a Christian should have knowledge of, concerning the second coming of Christ. It's a big deal. You shouldn't be indifferent to it. And I know it's just, you know, well, of course He's coming, but if God has, in His will, has put things in Scripture for us to understand, then we should have some effort to try to understand what that word is. We should have, make some effort to say, I want to I I learn what this has to say. Because I think, you know, what Jesus said, he said uh, that, you know, about the law, he said, you know, that, not, uh, that every jot and every tittle will not pass away. That e- those are just the, the comma, in our vernacular, those are the commas and breath marks. Meaning, if we said it, uh, he said, not every period and comma will pass away. That means every detail of the word of God is significant. Hello? And so there should be things that we say, you know what? That's new. I've never looked at that, so I'm gonna be challenged by this. So this section, as I said, that really is from this point in chapter four through midpoint in chapter five covers a lot of ground of things that are important. That what happens to the death, or what about the death of a Christian? The rapture of the church, the physical return of Christ, the the uh, final judgment of unbelievers. Those are things that are uh, either addressed specifically or alluded to in this section of Scripture. And as I say, we're not going to cover all this, but we're just kind of getting things going. My goal is to keep it simple, keep it focused on Scripture, but above all, leave here where we are always encouraged in the hope that we have, that we have a future. That is anchored in the purposes of God. That's what Paul said in verse 18, that we are to encourage ourselves. So today, I want us to look in verse uh, 13 through 18, the scriptures that we read. Let it speak for itself. And as I said, uh, some things that we'll come back and spend a little more detail in next week and the week after, especially concerning what the rapture is, what's involved with that, uh, what can we learn, what what is said and what is not said. We'll we'll allude to that a little bit, but we'll spend more time in the next coming weeks in bringing some of that in. But notice just a few things as we open up before we kind of break it down, uh, that Paul says in verse 13... Of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. Your version might say that uh, he doesn't want you to be ignorant, meaning that these are things that are important for you to understand. He doesn't want you to be uninformed. He wants you, and he wants these readers and the people that are reading this letter, he wants them to be informed about the second coming of Christ, and also about what happens to our lives at the second coming. What happens to those uh, loved ones who have preceded us in death? How, do they, how does that work in? One of the things that, that the Thessalonians uh, was of concern that prompted the Apostle Paul's writing of this was they had a concern of an issue that they had a question about what happens to those loved ones who have died that will they miss the resurrection? Will they uh, not be included in the rapture of the church? Have they missed out on the, on the blessed hope? What, what happens to them? And, and uh, those uh, scholars have given us some hint that perhaps the Thessalonians have been infected, well, we know they were, through you know, false teachers and misunderstanding, Uh, Some were teaching that the rapture and the resurrection uh, uh, and the second coming has already already taken place, so naturally they're concerned. So a lot of confusion, much like today, right? Much like today. There's a lot of confusion. And so Paul says, I want to write to bring some clarity and try to pull the weeds out concerning what some of these false teachers have planted, just another little side note is the fact that this church had a concern and had a, had a question concerning the second coming of Christ. It wasn't is Christ coming, but there was an assumption of course he's coming. I'll give you a couple of examples. Look um, and again you're going to need your Bibles, this will help kind of break the pages open in some of those places that are stuck together, and uh, we're going to use your Bibles today. But look over to chapter 1, we're in First Thessalonians, just go to chapter 1 and look at verse 9 and 10, just to see that he wasn't de- giving them new information that Jesus is coming, they already had a, a sense of that and an understanding of that from what they had been previously taught by the Apostle Paul. Uh, verse 9 of uh, chapter 1, for they themselves, he's, he's writing back to them, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how, this is their testimony, how you, these Thessalonian believers, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. So there was a sense that they had an anticipation concerning the second coming of Christ, that Jesus was returning back. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you. So Paul already had given them a lot of instructions, and the fact that, uh, that they had an understanding concerning the second coming of Christ should, should indicate to us that that is essential to just the core basic things of what we need to understand as a believer. This is a young church. Paul wasn't there that long, and yet one of the things that they were taught is they taught, were taught some basics concerning the second coming of Christ. And he's acknowledging that, that they've had instruction to that. Uh, go to chapter 5, where we'll be in a few weeks. Chapter 5, verse 1. Through three now concerning the times and seasons brothers you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night so speaking of course the thief in the night and the the, the speaking of the judgment but the point is is they had a sense that Christ was coming back they believed that but their question wasn't concerning the imminent second coming of Christ. Imminent means at any moment. Okay, They had an understanding that of, an, of the imminence of the coming of Christ. They, they, they weren't, that wasn't their problem. They wanted to know that if he were to come at any moment, what about those loved ones who have died? Are they going to miss out on this resurrection? Are they going to miss out on this uniting with Christ when he returns? That was their their are question, and that's where Paul wants to address that. In chapter, uh, back in chapter 4, verse 13, I want to just note something that we see in a couple of places. Uh, verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. That is a term that speaks of specifically believers. It's never used of unbelievers, but it's used of believers who have died. It is uh, that the term sleep is kind of a softened expression, uh, a euphemism uh, for death, that they are sleep. Now, what we want to make sure is is that what it is not saying here. Uh, By the way, sleep was used by the early church as a term for those who had died, that, they were, that their, their body looked as though they were asleep. And uh, the, the word, the Greek word that is used there, uh, koyameome, not that you care, but that's I had to say that to get it out of my mouth. But, uh, but it, it's a word that we get the word cemetery from, okay? So the scriptures, when it refers to sleep, this is really important, all right? because it'll help you understand the rest of what we do. The term sleep in Scripture refers to bodies, bodies that are laid in the grave. Our soul or spirit, that is when a person dies, the, our soul, our spirit, soul and spirit, some just say our spirit, that that immediately goes into the presence of the Lord, but our physical bodies, our flesh, that remains, if you will, in the grave. We are immediately into the presence of Christ. We enjoy, have a conscious enjoyment of heaven as believers, okay? But our bodies remain in the grave. Now, this is where I want to underline this. The Bible teaches that the body is asleep, if you will. It does not teach Uh, What is sometimes taught primarily by Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and maybe some other groups, what is referred to as soul sleep, meaning that when you die, you're just dead. Nothing else happens. You're waiting, your spirit and soul and body, everything is just in the grave awaiting the resurrection. No. To be absent from the body, the Scripture says, is to be what? Present with the Lord. So there's there's so the body sleeps in the grave. The physical body, or what is left of the physical body, is in the grave, if you will, and the physical body is what will be resurrected when Jesus returns. And we're going to get a little more about that. Give you just a little side, a little freebie. You remember at the Mount of Transfiguration? It's in Matthew chapter 17. When Jesus uh, was on the mountain and and the disciples, Peter and John, saw him in his uh, transformed glory, all right, and they saw that transformed glory when he was up on the mountain, and what two individuals appeared with Christ on that mountain, you had Moses and Elijah, okay? They weren't dead in the grave. They were, their bodies and their personalities were identified. They were identified as Moses and Elijah. So they weren't just dead awaiting some resurrection. They were, their spirit, their soul was very much alive and their personality or their person was identified. They could be identified as Moses and Elijah. So that counteracts this idea of the confusion that some would have, that when you die, you're just kind of like an animal, and that's all there is. You're dead, and, um, but we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. So death is a subject that we really do not like talking about, but unfortunately, many of us in the past year, two years, especially in this church and uh, in our families, have experienced the reality of death, of loved ones, of friends, brothers, uh, pastors in the area, lots of uh, sons uh, uh, who who have died, Christians who have died, and so it's a subject that we don't like discussing. But yet the Bible has a lot to say about it, and the Bible gives us insight that should encourage us. Should as a Christian should give us hope, because the statistics of death is 100%, right? Whether we like it or not, that, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. That's an appointment you and I are going to keep, all right? It's not like the DMV or the dentist. We're going to keep that appointment, right? And Psalm 139 says that our days are written before there were any, all right? So God has a timetable, and that is just something that is a reality. James 4.14 says, what is your life? You are a mist, like a breath. You know, today, this morning, when we were coming out this morning, you could actually see your breath. That speaks about the brevity of life. How quick is your life? Just like a breath. You light a match and blow it out, and it just... That's quick. That's how quick it is. Now, some of us folks that are further along down the road, I'll be 60 soon, and I say what we all say when we start reaching in age, we're like, how quickly time has gone. It just seems like yesterday, you know, that uh, my son Timothy, who was 31 last week, that we brought him home from the hospital. I mean, time just goes quickly. It goes fast, but we should not be discouraged, and Paul, and the Word of God, wants us to get confident and anchor our hope in truth. He wants us to be fixed on the good news of Christ. So as we get into some of this first part of this passage, we're not going to... Uh, Get into any sensationalism. I don't have any dates. I don't have the identity of the Antichrist or any of those things. So I know you'll be a little disappointed because you know what we want to do. We want to focus on Christ. Okay, it isn't sometimes all the some of the sensational. And I'm not saying some of that's not important to look at, talk about, and discuss. But we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the one coming back, all right? Christ is the one who is returning. And so uh, there is places where it talks about the rise and fall of nations, yes, the Antichrist, the tribulation, those things in Scripture, but that is not necessarily what Paul is addressing here. Paul wants us to know exactly what will happen when Christ appears, whether it's today, tomorrow, or a thousand years from now, The Word of God. Signs are important, but the actual physical return of Jesus is paramount in our thinking and should be the focus of any attention concerning end times. Now, notice also, just by way of introduction still, verse 15, what Paul says. Paul says in verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This wasn't just Paul's speculation. This wasn't just something, you know, he made up on the fly. Paul is saying, what I'm going to teach you, what I'm going to give you, this has been given to me by revelation, if you will, not the book of Revelation, but revelation, being revealed by God's uniquely and special to the apostle Paul. Think about all of the things that God revealed truths to the Apostle Paul that we would have no understanding in the rest of Scripture. Justification, the the propitiation of Christ, the blood atonement, all those things. Yeah, we have them pictured, but, but think about the revelation that Paul has been used concerning the church and and the, the gifts of the Spirit and all those things that God has used this apostle to lead and teach his church in and the second coming and the, the rapture of the church and all of these things are things that God has uniquely given to the apostle Paul by a word of the Lord. Don't let that slip by you. This is not Paul's opinion. He says, look, I give it to you by Revelation of God, God has given me what I'm going to tell you, and so therefore we can have some confidence and a surety of what He shares. So this morning I want to look at four aspects, but we're only going to look. We're really only going to cover two for time's sake. And uh, first is that we're actually going to look at a return. We're going to look at secondly a resurrection thirdly, the rapture, and fourthly, a reunion. But this morning, we're only going to talk about the first two. So let's look at the first one here uh, concerning what happens when Christ returns. Number one, a return takes place. Notice with me in verse 16, the first part of verse 16, the focus is on the Savior. The focus is on the Savior. It says in verse 16 that the Lord himself, not some other kind of messenger, not even an angel. Yeah, we have the shout and the, uh, the announcement of the archangel that we'll see, but it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Can't get any plainer than that. Now, it, Now, again, all Christians, if they're true believers, I believe, And believe the word of God and are in the true faith. They all, without exception, believe in the second coming of Christ. Can't deny that. Where we differ is in the when, and sometimes in the how. And uh, but verse sixteen it says the Savior for the Lord Himself. You remember what was written in Acts chapter one verse eleven. You remember when Jesus. After the resurrection, he ascended back up into heaven, and the uh, two angels appeared to the apostles and said, why are you gazing up into heaven? Acts one eleven, and, and the angels said uh, to paraphrase. Well, I don't want to paraphrase. I'll read it. I don't think it's on the screen. Acts one eleven, And you should know this verse. You should mark it in your margin near here, all right? This same Jesus... Not somebody born in another country, another time, not some other. No, this same Jesus. What does that mean? This same actual physical historical Jesus of Nazareth that was born, that lived, that was crucified, that was resurrected. That same person, not coming back in the form of somebody else. This same Jesus. Who has been taken from you? How? Bodily taken from you to heaven. We know that's where he's gone. Even though Christ is omniscient, all knowing, and uh, uh, omnipresent all everywhere. He's not limited to certain spaces, God. But taken the same Jesus who has been taken from you to heaven will come back. Acts 11. The same way. Shouldn't miss that. should know where that is in your Bibles. Just as you've seen him go into heaven, this same Jesus. So the Savior will return. Now one thing that Jesus did teach his disciples, turn over in your Bible to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. These will not be on the screen. Matthew 24, Jesus warned his followers that in the last days, and we've been in the last days from Pentecost now, I do know this about the last days, we're closer than we were 100 years ago. <laughs> now, I don't, know what, I don't know how much further, but I just know, hey, I'm, I'm closer today than I was yesterday, all right? Whatever. But the last days is, is that, that period of time. Remember, time is a concept of earth, of creation. God is not bound by time, and we have to watch that when we start uh, looking at things that refer to time in Scripture. But Matthew chapter 24, this is an important section because he's addressing his uh, second coming, and he addresses some issues to his disciples. Look in chapter 24, let's just begin at verse 1. Jesus left the temple, was going away, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That prophecy was fulfilled in the year 70 AD when the Romans came in and leveled and destroyed the temple and destroyed and basically uh, plundered, uh, leveled Jerusalem. That's what he's referring to, and that prophecy did come to the pass. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them. Notice what his first response was. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ or I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. Look over at uh, verse 23, same chapter, Matthew 24. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs, and wonders so as to lead astray, notice this, if possible. In other words, the deception is going to be so great that if it were possible, and he's saying it's not, but if it were possible, the deception is so great, even the elect. But we know the elect won't ultimately be astray because why? They're the elect, all right? See, I have told you beforehand. Jesus warns them concerning being deceived. Those who will come and will say, we are coming in the name of the Lord. That will be something that we will have to watch out for and pay attention to. Notice also in this return of not just a Savior, but we also see this return involves the saints. In verse 14, we're back in 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians verse 14 This return the bible says that Christ for since we believe that Christ died and rose again even so through Jesus god will bring with him those who have fallen asleep again another term speaking about those who have died the saints who have died second corinthians and I believe that might be on the screen, I'm not positive, yes. 2 Corinthians, for time's sake, reads this way, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and I kind of edited it a little bit, we are confident, yes, well, please, rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's important because, again, we're talking about the sleep of the physical body. We're not dead in the grave like, like an animal. We are very much alive when we die in the presence of the Lord. Okay, We are with the Lord in heaven. So right now, every believer, according to back to 1 Thessalonians 4.14, that when Christ returns, Christ will bring with him all right? Christ will bring with, with him, if you could go back to that verse 14, please. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So those who have previously died, believers, Christians, those who have died, the Bible says that they, their souls, their bodies are Where? Their physical outfit they need to function on earth is where? It's in the grave. Don Quarter will be with that group, okay? And he's excited about that, all right? And they will come back, they will be with Christ at this return. So every believer who has died, whether uh, that is right now present with Christ in heaven, is awaiting the event of what Paul says will take place in verse 14. Christ will come. He will return with heaven with the souls or spirit, whatever word you want to use, of every departed believer who will then be united with their new Physical, resurrected body that up to this point has been in the grave. Do I understand all that? No. But that's what the Bible's telling us, isn't it? That's what it's telling us. It's saying that those who have died, who are believers, that at this coming they will be with Christ. And there will be a reuniting, there will be a transformation, we'll see that in just a minute, of their physical bodies. But we'll get to that in just a minute. But notice not only do we see at this return, it speaks about the Savior, the saints, but notice also the sound that takes place. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. Only other time... I believe an archangel is mentioned in the New Testament is in Jude 9 where it's Michael. Now, we don't know if this is Michael. Jewish tradition said there were seven archangels. That's not in the Bible. That was Jewish tradition. So I don't know. But it will be an archangel or the voice of an archangel will make this uh, cry of a command and there will be the sound of the trumpet of God. Trumpets, you know, are used in the Old Testament, you know, concerning the announcement of Feasts and festivals and and the blowing of the shofar. I mean, it was a declaration of declaring uh, this this uh, the, the, this event that's going to take place. But it was also trumpets were used at to summon people to to an event that would take place. So that will be the sound, a shout of authority and a voice of victory that will take place. In old days, you had. People who would precede the king and would come into the village as a town crier and announce, the king is coming, the king is coming. So, in an essence, in this, in this return, there will be a cry of command, there will be a shout uh, of the Lord to announce his coming. Now, something you may ask yourself, that I ask myself, is how does this fit in with a secret rapture? I mean, I don't know how you're going to be a secret... I've got a thought, but how does that work in? Well, one, is it's not necessarily going to be secret. That's one explanation. But at the same time, it could be unheard by those who are not participating in this event. Remember Jesus said in... uh, Where did he say it? Was it John 14 where he says about my sheep, hear my voice? John 10. I always get 10 and 14 mixed up. Should have said it. You know in John, that would have been easier. Where he said my sheep know my voice, they hear my voice, and they respond to my voice. So I think it could be I'm not going to go out and start a new church over this doctrine. But I think it could be unheard by those who will not be raptured by the return of Christ. So in essence, it is going to be exclusively for the elect of God that will respond and be taken up by Christ. And that those who are not participating, uh, who are unbelievers, they will not hear. The shout or the command—that's very possible. Okay, I don't know. You have a better thought? You uh, you let me know. But if it's not, there ain't going to be anything quiet or secret about it. All right. So that's the first part uh, of the return. Okay. What happens when the Lord Jesus comes back? There is obviously a return. We see a return of the Savior Jesus, the saints, and a great. Sound, but the second is where we're going to finish this morning, and that is not just the return, but a resurrection. Okay, and this uh, this has a lot of pieces to it, and so it'll be good for us to delve into it uh, in the time that we have remaining. Verse sixteen, chapter four, verse sixteen. So you have the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the latter part of verse 16, it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is a statement of priority. Remember, the Thessalonians, what was their great concern? Their great concern was, what about those who have died? Are they going to miss out on this Return of Christ, are they going to miss out on the resurrection? And he says, no, absolutely not. He said, in fact, it's going to be those dead saints that have first priority in which the dead in Christ, that's talking about their bodies, the physical bodies, or what is remaining of those bodies, will be reunited with them, their soul, their spirit, whatever word you're comfortable with, now, there's two important words. Don't miss it. It says that the dead, and you should circle this in your Bible, in Christ. Those two words are key. Because if they're not in Christ, this ain't going to happen to them. It says the dead in Christ. This is not Addressing what happens, my understanding, of the unsaved, non-believers, rejectors, This is not speaking of what takes place to their resurrection. You know, there will be a resurrection of the unsaved. Not unto life, but unto judgment. That's spoken of in Revelation 2. Chapter 20. That is not what is going on here. Okay? That is, uh, that is another event. You say, well, where are the unsaved now? The unsaved are in hell. The unsaved are in what the Bible, in the if you know what the Septuagint is, the Old Testament word sheol, the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek, uh, the way they translate the Old Testament, uh, is the word Hades. That is the realm of the dead. That is where... Uh, those who are unbelievers or the rebellious—they that is where they go. They will not remain there because in Revelation 20, and this is a thought ahead of time, but in Revelation chapter 20, it speaks of how Satan will be cast into the pit, uh, the, the 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 pit, and un- the unbelievers will follow in that condemnation in that judgment of the lake. Of fire that speaks of a final judgment. That is not what is taking place here, all right? So don't confuse that resurrection with this resurrection here, okay? What is the text saying? It's saying that all believers, what's the key? In Christ, all believers in Christ will be resurrected, will be raised. That means that Christians who died 2,000 years ago, Peter, Paul, started to say Mary, but Peter, Paul, Mary, uh, you know, John, you know, (laughs) um, not Ringo, uh, but anyway, um, uh, they will be resurrected. And, And if believers died 500 years ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 50, an hour, they will be part of this resurrection. That will, because we know that when they die, they're not just floating around in the atmosphere. They're not just playing little harps and floating around with that nonsense. They are with the Lord. They are in the presence of the Lord. Okay, you're going to need your Bibles again. Look over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is where we're going to, we're coming in for a landing, but I want to finish this because this is really important here, this resurrection. Romans chapter 6. Let's see what other, you realize the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible, right? So that's why you should use cross references and those type of things. And uh, because the Bible has a lot to speak about passages that don't have clarity, and one passage will get another clarity in another. Uh, Romans chapter 6, let's look at verse 4 and 5. We were buried, Paul says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. This talks about us being united in Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, here it is, don't, don't miss this, just as, just as. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, what does it say? We too might walk in newness of life. For if, big if, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You see that's why and and go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians 15. That's why the resurrection of Christ Jesus is spoken of as the first fruits that as he was physically resurrected we're not going to be little we're not going to be Jesus don't misunderstand we're not down you know but just as Jesus demonstrated a physical bodily resurrection That is why he's called the the first fruits of our future hope of resurrection, okay? Look at 1 Corinthians um, 15, and uh, look around, um, well, actually, let's look at verse 23. But each in his own order, and I would encourage you to read chapter 15, because it's all about the resurrection, not just of Christ, but our own, so I'm just going to spot hit some places for time verse 20 let's back it up but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep see he's talking about those who have died he's the first fruits he's the first one for as by a man came death adam by a man also came also the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so as also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, the first one resurrected, then at his coming, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So it's Christ, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now look over to verse 50. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's got to be something transformative. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God Nor does the perishable, that's what these bodies were in now, they're perishable. Perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Verse 51, behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. Now he uses that word mystery not in describing some, you know, we've got to get together and pull these secret codes, you know, I hate that Bible code nonsense. Um, You know, that the Bible's got to be decoded and there's some secret that these elites, uh, that only in our little group we can find. That is not what he's talking about here. The word mystery used by Paul, this is what that, when you see Paul says, this is a mystery or about the mystery, he's saying this is something that is not Written or told about in the Old Testament. But is a new revelation by me in the new. That's what the word mystery there. So he says, I tell you a mystery. Not, ooh, a mystery. He says, I tell you something that you're not going to find Old Testament scripture on what I tell you. But it is not in any way diminished As the word of the Lord. Remember, that's what he said in 4.15. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all... What is sleep? The death of the body. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Look at verse 52. And when does he say it will happen? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. As fast as you just blinked. That's how quick the change will take place. But in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable. They're not imperishable now. The body is perishable, but we will be raised imperishable and shall be changed. Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, He said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs or graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of of judgment. Now, I think that's speaking about the Bema seed of judgment later on. But, but again, the voice of Christ will call those out of the grave. John 6.40. And John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have, what? Eternal life. John 3.16. And what does He say? And I will... Raise him up on the last day. Speaking of that resurrection. And here's a familiar one. There's many. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, heaven, we await a Savior. So, where he's saying that we're this part of this waiting, while we may not be physically there, as a believer, we will one day be there if we don't, uh, if the Lord doesn't precede that. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's that's what Paul, in different places, that's what he is talking about here. That means, listen to me, that includes every saint, every believer, whether they died at sea, whether they were cremated, died on a battlefield, ravaged with cancer, the Christians that were in the World Trade Center on 9-11 that never were found or identified. Listen, the God who created the molecules has the power to reassemble them back together again. Do you believe that? I believe that. All believers... All believers will be raised to new life. Going back to what Paul said in 1 1 Thessalonians 4. All believers will be raised with brand new, indestructible new bodies, clothed with immortality, healed, restored, put in our right minds, restored to the place where we will be and enjoy the presence of the Lord forever and ever and ever. That is the hope of the Christian. Yeah, there's things and details that aren't as clear as others, but that is what the Bible has taught, and that is what Christians have believed from the beginning. Let me close with this quote, and we'll be done. Promise. We're going to pick up. We talk about the return, the resurrection. Next week, we'll talk about the rapture and solve every question about that. <laughs> Actually, it may take a few weeks on the rapture. There's, there's a lot to get into there. But listen to this. Just please don't just hang on. Let me just read this. This John Walvard, president of Dallas Seminary, great Bible teacher. I read this in uh, one of his commentaries, and I thought it was really, really spot on. And really, he's addressing why there's an indifference concerning the doctrine of the second coming of Christ in today's churches. You know, if you grew up in an evangelical Bible church, you regularly heard messages, sometimes conferences, right, on on the coming of Christ. That isn't as common today. It's it's changing. But listen to what he says, and I'll close with this. One reason so many people these days do not consider seriously the coming of Christ for them is that they have not been at the cross enough. Pulpits that do not proclaim the death of Christ and His resurrection, can hardly be expected to preach the coming of the Lord. All these events are tied together. If we accept what the Scriptures teach about the first coming of Christ and put our trust in Him, then there will be planted in our hearts an earnest desire to see the Savior and the truth of His coming "...for us will be exceedingly precious. Do we, he asked, do we really anticipate the Lord's appearing? Does it mean anything that Christ might come back today? Many Christians may believe in His return as part of their doctrinal beliefs, but they may not have this as their daily expectation. This may be part of their creed, but not part of their continual anticipation." The difficulty is that their hearts and minds are not really fixed on Christ. They hold to the truth of the Lord's coming, but the truth does not hold them. We will love the appearing of the Lord in direct proportion to our love for the Lord Jesus Himself. If we love Him, if we long to see Him who first loved us, the truth of the Lord's coming and the fact that he could come today, will be a precious truth.